Welcome back to the program. When Oliver Wendell Holmes talked about Roosevelt's first-class temperament, he never explained why it was important. It didn't explain how for a future president presiding over victory in two wars in just one term without braggadocio might matter, or respecting those with disabilities and allowing it to become a civil rights issue mattered, or respecting manners and the conduct of both public and private affairs might shape the destiny of a great nation. Yet it is precisely that temperament that George Herbert Walker Bush brought to the presidency. Imagine any of today's candidates exercising similar temperament or restraint or manners. It would be a little like looking for the cool of Sinatra or Jesse Owens in today's music or sports celebrities. All of this just might be an amusing dinner table conversation about days and behaviors gone by if my guest John Meacham in his new biography of Bush 41 didn't show us how profoundly these qualities mattered in the conduct and outcome of public policy and international diplomacy. John Meacham is a recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Andrew Jackson, American Lion. He's an executive editor at Random House. He's also the author of Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, and American Gospel. It is my pleasure to welcome John Meacham back to this program to talk about destiny and power, the American odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back. It's a delight to have you here as we look at the political landscape today, not in any partisan sense at all, but in terms of personalities and people. Does it make this story of George Herbert Walker Bush that you tell even more significant in so many ways? You know, I think it does. It is poignant, certainly. Um, You know, it was only 25 years ago where we had a president who for whom most of what goes on today would be simply an anthema. Uh, he this is a man who w- was so concerned about not appearing to step beyond his his prescribed role that he refused to land on the South Lawn of the White House and uh, the presidential helicopter as he came back during the Reagan assassination attempt. Um, Secret Service wanted him to do it. His staff wanted him to do it. He simply said... Only the president lands on the South Lawn. It, it was a kind of restraint, a kind of uh, respect for the forms and the substance of, of public life that is uh, simply not on, not in evidence. Um, you know, these days to be a member of the establishment apparently just means you've run for office before. Um, and so he represents an older and fading, if not entirely faded, uh, kind of statesmanship. But one of the things that, that you show so profoundly is that that kind of statesmanship, that kind of temperament mattered, that it really did have a profound outcome in terms of policy. It was not just style. No, right. absolutely. Uh, whether it was the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, when he refused to uh, take a triumphalist stand, refused to dance on the wall, as he put it, uh, which directly helped um, Mikhail Gorbachev in his own uh, cause of reform in the Soviet Union, uh, whether it was uh, diplomatic deals uh, about the fall of the Soviet Union along the way. You know, when he was, when he was a boy, he was known as half-half Bush. Uh, he would take a treat and cut it in half and give it give half to the, his friend, and that guided him in many ways. He had the capacity 
which is the mark of any great negotiator, any great president, any great leader, to put himself in the other guy's shoes and to feel as that, that the other person would feel. And so whether it was Berlin or Lithuania or uh, anything else, his manners had a substantive effect on the conduct of the office. And beyond the manners themselves and beyond the temperament, one of the things you talk about early on is that even going back to your earliest meetings with Bush, that he was a more complicated figure than he certainly was in the popular imagination, certainly more than the Dana Carvey caricature. Absolutely. No, that's why I did the book, is I just totally, as his son would later say, misunderestimated him. Uh, he um, was, in, was incredibly complex, is incredibly complex, and... I, I, I remember I met him in 1998, and in a very short period of time, it became clear to me why and how he had become president. Uh, he did convey this ineffable sense of command, a sense that your fate would be safe in his hands. And that's something that I had no expectation uh, of feeling. But when you think about it, that in and of itself is the fundamental political transaction in a democracy. Do we trust this person with ultimate power, ultimate authority? And what Bush did, decade after decade, assignment after assignment, campaign after campaign, is he convinced just enough people that their fates would be safe in his hands. The other part of it, and, and, and is this tension that exists, and you talk a lot about this, between being ambitious, not shunning ambition at all, but in some ways concealing that ambition and, and, and letting yeah. that ambition play out in its own way? Talk about that. Oh, absolutely. No, he's one of the most ferociously competitive, ambitious men uh, alive. And he talked about how uh, in some ways that's good, in some ways it's not. Uh, but he, I, I call it, you know, he had a code of camouflaged competitiveness uh, going all the way back to prep school days. Uh, his teachers, uh, one of the great uh, biographical joys of this was getting his Andover file from uh, Phillips Academy where he was from the time he was 14 until he was 18. And to read his teacher's reports about him I don't know who was doing the hiring for Andover, but that was a genius headmaster uh, because they got it all. They understood that he gets too intense. He worried too much. He hid the fact that he worked really hard. Um, all of these characteristics that were borne out through the years. Uh, part of his code was that Bushes were to win, but never brag about it. And they were never supposed to show that they were actually exerting any effort uh, in order to to win. And so it was very much a, a kind of a Victorian, Edward, Edwardian sensibility that uh, was still very much alive, the Greenwich of the 1930s when he was growing up. And it did not at all fit in with the political ethos that was taking shape as he was president. Uh, one of the ironies of, of George H.W. Bush's presidency is 
he was elected more or less in one world and left office, was defeated in another. And one of the factors that changed was this rise of a confessional, more uh, open, emotionally open politics. Bill Clinton saying, I feel your pain. One of the ironies is George Bush felt everyone's pain. He just didn't think it was his job to show it. There's also a disconnect, it seems, between the campaign, and and this goes to this ambition issue, the campaign that he ran, a vicious campaign, arguably, against Michael Dukakis, and the kind of -of out-of-touch campaign he ran against Bill Clinton. True, true. Uh, A couple of factors there. Uh, I think 1992 was a perfect storm. Um, the president was first had a thyroid condition called Graves disease, uh, that affected his energy levels, his acuity, not his fitness for office, but his sort of his enthusiasm for, for, uh, the campaign trail. I think that slowed him down. Um, the recession was over, but the recovery was not robust. Uh, so that, that hurt him as well. Because he had broken his Read My Lips pledge, he had, he had brought Pat Buchanan in uh, as a primary challenger. Uh, Ross Perot was a distraction, an important distracting figure. And you had this great hunk of political talent in Bill Clinton uh, coming along. So the, the other thing that's uh, a high dork point but, but should be made is that Bush, in a way, was living on borrowed historical time in any event. Uh, We had not had 12 consecutive years of one-party rule in the White House since Roosevelt and Truman during the war. And so the 1988 victory was in some ways historically anomalous. Uh, And to have gone to 16 years would have meant that uh, they were at a Roosevelt-Truman level. It also makes that moment in the debate mm-hmm. against Bill Clinton when he looks at his watch and, and looks this this sense of it's time to get out of here. It makes that even more profound in so many ways. It does. And he was that moment is actually where all the new forces of the new politics come to a harrowing uh, uh, point. Uh, he looks at the watch. He fumbles the question about uh, how has the national debt affected you? If you watch that video, uh, which is available online, you can see Clinton with a wolfish look on his face uh, as he watches the president uh, just not quite connect with this one and uh, then strides over and, and does the full Clinton uh, in, 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 uh, in great form. It just wasn't his politi- – it wasn't Bush's political world. Um, he was someone who had come of age – uh, had risen to the top in a different universe, one where there wasn't cable television, one where there wasn't a 24-hour news cycle, one where he believed anyway that if you got to the right result, the people would be with you, even if you didn't explain it. Dan Quayle told me a very important thing in the course of this. He said that his view of President Bush's conduct of the office was that it was results-oriented, that Bush simply didn't see the uh, the role of the ongoing role of politics in the life of an administration. And I think there's a lot to. I think he believed honestly that if he did the right thing, if his heart was in the right place, 
that the country would follow, not understanding that the bully pulpit was absolutely essential to presidential success. This goes to this idea that we hear about during campaigns of, of really campaigning in poetry and having to govern in prose. Precisely. And, and, and George Bush was as prosaic a figure all the way through. Um, he gave a couple of memorable speeches. Uh, the, probably the most important, of course, was his 1988 acceptance speech uh, in New Orleans when he said, I am that man, uh, that he saw life in terms of missions taken, missions completed. It's a beautiful piece of oratory written by Peggy Noonan, and it got him in trouble. Uh, he where he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And that became the, uh, the tripwire of the Bush presidency, causing a revolt on the, of the right wing when he, in, in fact, decided that uh, he had to raise taxes, uh, some taxes, in 1990. It was one, of the, one of the differences between history and journalism is that with history, you get the opportunity with the perspective of time to actually assess what these decisions ultimately meant. And again, an irony in the life of George H.W. Bush is that breaking that pledge in order to get the deal he got in 1990, which included caps on spending, uh, in the federal budget process, which sounds horribly boring, but which was really, really important to creating the conditions for the prosperity of the 1990s. So what he did is he sacrificed his own political interest to what he saw as the national interest. And when I interviewed President Obama for this book, uh, one of the first things out of the president's mouth was that as good a measure of a president as we can have is to what extent did that president put the country first and that George H.W. Bush had consistently put the country first. One of the other things, though, that was going on at the time, which is something that, that Bush actually addressed in his inaugural, is this idea that, that your opponents suddenly had to be castigated as bad people as opposed to just having ideas that you disagreed with. Right. You can, you can have a difference of opinion without questioning someone's motives. Um, absolutely right. I'm convinced that he believed in the Washington in which he had come of age and in which his father had served as a senator, um, which was in the late 1960s. He was in the, Bush was in the Congress from 67 to 71. He voted with Lyndon Johnson 53% of the time. Can you imagine today a Republican voting with a Democratic president 53% of the time? Uh, then, for, So he served Johnson for two years and then Nixon for two. Under Nixon, that number soared to 55%. I mean, this, this was a man who called them as he saw them. And his, some of his best friends were Democrats. Uh, Lud Ashley of Ohio, Sonny Montgomery of Mississippi, Dan Roskankowski of... Uh, of Chicago, you know, these were the people he hung out with and he saw, uh, socially without agenda. Uh, they were his genuine friends. And so his Washington, his reality was not a bipartisan Valhalla. I don't mean that, but it was one where you were friends with Democrats. You gave them a vote or two here or there. Politics was not total war. That's the vital point here. 
politics to George H.W. Bush was not Sherman-esque, but it was to someone like Newt Gingrich, who was rising in power even as Bush held the ultimate job. One of the things you talk about are the, are the forces that shape Bush personally. You talk about being shot down over the Pacific, the losing two of his fellow airmen, the, the impact that that had on him, the loss of his daughter. To what extent did the work over the years shape Bush, his time in Congress, his time at the UN, the CIA, China? To what extent did those experiences also shape the man who became president? Well, uh, Congress, we just talked about, he learned that the world was not Manichaean, uh, that it was full of shades of gray, and you would vote this way and that way, depending on the given the given issue. Uh, when he went to the United Nations, he learned the value of personal relationships in a political context. Uh, his favorite thing to do was would be to take ambassadors and their families out to his uh, own family's house in Greenwich, take them ice skating, cook them hamburgers. Uh, the personal diplomacy that we later saw manifest in the run up to the first Gulf War, where Bush knew everyone in power around the world, had its roots at the UN. Uh, when he was chairman of the Republican National Committee during Watergate, uh, you saw a man who agonized over the distinctions between the tension between loyalty to party and loyalty to the truth. Uh, when he went to China after that, he learned that politics was a long game. Uh, the Chinese thought in terms of centuries, uh, decades, certainly. Uh, and Bush learned that Americans may want change quickly, but other countries have different timetables. At the CIA, he told me he learned the possibilities and limits of intelligence. Uh, very, very good on technical intelligence. He loved the satellites. He, he loved the, uh, the technical gathering of intelligence, but knew that intelligence could not always accurately tell you what the motives or plans of the human beings involved were. So uh, then as vice president, which I think is in some ways almost a, a tragic story to some extent, you spent eight years next to the, arguably the greatest presidential communicator since FDR. And yet instead of learning from that and trying to become better at it himself, I think he was intimidated by it. He was intimidated by Reagan's capacity to communicate. And so to, to some extent, I think he overcorrected. Uh, he went the other way. Uh, he much preferred a press conference in the briefing room to a speech in the Oval Office. Uh, Reagan was exactly the opposite. So when you look at his life whole, I think you can see those lessons all were tributaries that formed the river uh, that be, ro roared through uh, the life of his presidency. And when he looks at the presidency, and, and certainly much has been written about this, I mean, you've written about it, but much has been talked about how he views 43's presidency. One of the things that becomes clear, even in his comments about Cheney and Rumsfeld, is that his objections were not so much to the policies but they were to the right. way it played out, that it was really 
W's temperament that he seemed to have more of an issue with? It, the differences were style, not substance. You're exactly right. And it's interesting, you know, it's fascinating because to him, I will say this, to him, the two were closer uh, because of the, the series of lessons we just ran through. Uh, he simply thought that saying things like axis of evil uh, or acting hawkish and swaggering were not uh, ultimately going to be of diplomatic use. Uh, that was his view. Um, he made no apologies for it. Um, President Bush 43, to his credit, copped the whole thing. He said, yes, I was, you know, my rhetoric could get pretty hot, um, but that it was a difference in generational style. And um, so I think that in many ways, what President Bush 41 was lamenting in his comments about Cheney and Rumsfeld and to some extent his son was the end of that era of politics that was already pretty much done in, by 1992. Um, I really do think that's a critical thing. I think the, the roots of our politics today, as odd as they are, uh, can be traced to that one term of George H.W. Bush's, the rise of the 24-hour news cycle. You know, we didn't have the Internet then, but cable was coming on, programming. Remember, there would have been no Ross Perot without Larry King. You know, the, there was already the, you know, the, the breakdown in traditional communications, the breakdown in, in three networks at 630. All that was happening as George Bush was, was president. The other is this rise of freelance partisanship uh, that you saw in the life and career of Newt Gingrich, where it was more important to a political figure to personally advance an agenda than to do so as part of a traditional party structure. And the third is this, uh, again, this personalization of, of conf the confessionalization, I sometimes call it, of politics, where your personal story is so much a part of your uh, political identity. You know, Bush would talk a little bit about being in the war, uh, but he hardly ever uh, did it in a way that somebody would do it today. Um, you know, it just wasn't part of his ambient reality to talk about his biography and yet his biography was an essential part of why he would have been elected um so i think it's i think it's extraordinary to, to look at how fast politics changed right under george bush's feet and which gave us uh, sort of the wide open wild west kind of world we have now the other part of that, the corollary of that, I suppose, is how he saw ideology in general, but conservatism specifically, and where he saw his place in that. Well, he was a different kind of conservative. There's no question about that. Uh, he was a classical conservative mm -hmm. in the way Dwight Eisenhower was, uh, in the way Edmund Burke was, to go all the way back. Right. He accepted the world as he found it attempted to preserve what was best about it and reform modestly that which required reform. That's classical conservatism, is that you don't believe that any sudden action can uh, ameliorate 
uh, the human condition. Uh, you are wary of a classical conservative is wary of the sudden and the visionary. And Bush was surely wary of the sudden and the visionary. Now, the irony, of course, is that he presided over a period, as he called it, a fascinating change in the world itself, uh, whether it was uh, the end of the Soviet Union or the Gulf War, uh, Mandela being released, you know, the, the, a whole chapter of human history where nuclear Armageddon had been at the heart of uh, our, our foreign policy calculus ended on his watch. But when you look at how he dealt with it, he dealt with it as a manager, as, as someone who was charged with uh, the conduct of those affairs, not someone who was driving them. And that, that made him more conservative. At home, um, he, was, uh, he has a much more significant domestic legacy than I think people give him credit for. You mentioned a few a moment ago. The Americans with Disabilities Act, which has changed the life of you know, millions of Americans, uh, the Clean Air Act of 1990, which is still functionally our environmental policy, and that 1990 budget deal that set up some spending constraints that helped set the terms for the prosperity of the 90s. Those are three pretty big achievements, uh, and he got almost no credit in real time. And if he did get credit, it was negative credit. Uh, partly because on the first two, on the ADA and the Clean Air Act, Republicans were, didn't particularly like the legislation because it played too much of a role, gave the, the public sector too much of a role, and Democrats weren't interested in giving a Republican president credit. Uh, so he sort of fell between two stools there. Why was he so negative and, and even commented on what, what he referred to as the vision thing? Why did that scare him so much? You know, he just disliked, I think it goes back to his childhood, he disliked the use of the first-person pronoun, which makes this a very strange career choice he made. <laughs> um, and um, he didn't see himself as a grand political figure. Um, he saw himself as an important political figure, as a dedicated one, as a devout one, but vision and the trumpets and all of that, that he associated that with Reagan. He associated that with, uh, more, uh, self-seeking politicians than he was. Um, I think he was wrong in that by the way, but to answer it from his point of view, um, you know, offering grand statements of policy to his mind, flew in the face of that idea that he was results oriented. Um, and that speech, he believed that speeches did not make policy. Uh, it, it was one of his cardinal failings. Um, he was one of, it's hard to imagine a better president at managing the results of different situations, managing different particular situations, but hard to imagine a worse president at explaining what those meant, putting them in a broader context, and convincing the country that there was that there we were in fact on a distinct course. Uh, the criticism the criticism of him that we had seen he seemed to move just through the inbox is not an unfair one. Uh, you know, 
I try, scholars uh, scholars have tried to sort of put his foreign policy and, and, and other things and, and this, these frameworks. And, and there, there was, there was reason to what he did, but he, he told me, he said, I didn't run for president to say, Oh, Hey, I'm going to go pass a flat tax or something. Uh, he said he admitted he didn't have a grand vision. He wanted to help people, he wanted to make the world a little better. And he was puzzled in his old age as to why that wasn't enough. John Meacham, the book is Destiny and Power, the American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Always happy to. Thank you.